Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, David. Mark, David. Good morning there. Oh, man. I, I don't even know. I mean, my mind was blown, everything that Matt was saying. It was that good, huh? It was It was that good. The funny thing was, is he was refuting everything that you had said. <laughs> I don't know if like you were, so. But I don't have to explain that again. Then, no, I wasn't. I was, I was just making, I was trying to make your job a little bit harder. Oh, good. You know, by, 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 by saying, you know, well, it's easy to kind of dismiss the hypotheticals and say, we can't do that because that's what, uh, that sort of hypothetical, you know, what's Fletcher's term, you know, the Situa- uh, situational, situational ethics. ethics. Yeah. Situational ethics is, that's not what we do as Christians. Okay. I agree. However, that's not how people talk usually or think. And so they usually say, well, what if you get thrown into prison and some guy's about to rape? You? Let's just say if you go to prison in 2021, in America, we have the highest per capita prison population in the entire world. And so that's really not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, that one of us might not end up there. <laughs> you know, we were talking about Niebuhr, you know, and, you know, we were talking, the context of the conversation was, of course, you know, World War II. And it's like, okay, well, when does it become unjust? to not do anything, right? When does it become sinful or wrong to not step in, you know, to not, whether it's, you know, it's, it's always, you know, I think we can kind of sweep away the hypotheticals and say, oh, no, you can't ask hypothetical questions. That's, you know, that's, that's uh, Fletcher or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, nonetheless, and I agree, people were, are still going to always ask those hypothetical questions. Well, what if I'm walking down the street or what if someone bikes into my home or what if, you know, this, and what if that? And, and, and I'm also it reminded me of Harwas, you know, kind of like, well, you might have to get creative, you know, and say, I'm a Christian. So I don't know. I'm under constraints. <laughs> I'm under the constraints of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that I can't, that I can't fight you. And so maybe you interject that into a particular situation. Like if someone's about to take your commissary or whatever, and you say, look, man, I'll give you my honey bun, you know, because you must need it more than I don't know if that would be. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I can give up the honey bun, uh, you know, but, (laughs) but it's like, but here's the deal. I serve our Lord Jesus Christ and he has commanded us to love one another as brothers. And so I'm going to give you this honey bun even though I really wanted it, you know, but it's not because I'm scared. It's not because I'm a coward. It's not because it's nothing about that, man. It's because I love our Lord Jesus Christ and I, I'm a servant of God. And so here's your honey bun. And so maybe you could, by interjecting that sort of creative nonviolence, uh, I think that you're inviting the Holy Spirit and, you know, the Lord Jesus and the Father into that moment. Right. I mean, the power of God, like whenever St. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that, you know, the proclamation, because it's the power of God. Well, maybe whenever you make that proclamation in a, in a otherwise impossible situation, the power of God shows up. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be I, think so. I think either so. that or you're going to get your nose broke. You know, I, I, it's... <laughs> I I'm, I'm reminded, um, I've heard uh, I heard Baton say it, kind of the conclusion of his book, and I think I've heard Harwa say it, and um, I'm sure Yoder. And but it's not practical at all. It's not about being practical. It's it's a witness. So I'm I'm kind of reminded of that it's because it's kind of funny because these very discussions, you know, I'm in a very traditional American church environment. As as I kind of. <laughs> slowly and patient ways poison them with a new kind of thinking there are what's that christianity you're right right but discussions discussions will come up i mean like i remember sitting at a you know we we're all hanging out at the patio and somebody you know said all right let's go around the the, the group because we already know dave's not going to protect his wife here 
I mean, you know, they just make blanket statements. <laughs> yeah. They already right. know that if an intruder comes in the house, Dave's not going to protect his wife. And, right, right. And um, so uh, who's going to defend their wives? You know, so hands start going up. You know? <laughs> um, oh, but, man. But, you know, it, it, it does open up, you know, for discussions. And back to even World War II, right? One... Uh, I guess the first thing is, is for the church, it is, it is a witness. And, and two, because it's, I think ultimately, maybe even the difference between like Anabaptists, like Mennonites and brethren. And I, I, I think I lean more towards the Mennonite in this. I, I'm still trying to work it out. But I think the Mennonite part was they, they saw themselves in some sense, a separate kingdom than the brethren. I feel like the brethren, I feel like the brethren felt like they, they could somehow influence the nation for Christianity or whatever. You know, I'm reading David Lipscomb now, and I mean, he basically says, listen, countries are, their birth is out of Babel. You, so you, you can't, there's nothing you can do. He, would, he won't even vote, right? Because to, to vote is to participate in, in the politics of Babel. But I, I do think it goes back to, to a, you know, witness, not necessarily, you know, something that's going to work. And I don't know who said it, I, um, but if you don't fight, there's plenty others that will, you know, take up the sword. Yeah. Uh, I forget that's who what, that's what That's what was Paul's answer to my, because I was saying, you know, at what point does it become unethical? Because what we're talking about is ethics. You know, what, at what point does it become unethical? Like, I think it would be wrong if someone was trying to hurt my wife or you guys, for that matter, to not stop them. Like, I just think that that would be uh, wrong. You know, um, and now it doesn't mean I have to like shoot them in the head. I don't have a gun. You know, um, it doesn't mean I have to like cripple them or whatever. You know, put them in a wheelchair. It's like, but I could, I could stop them, and I think to not stop them would be wrong. To just like let my wife get beat, you know, raped or something because of my commitment to like an ideal that puts her like in jeopardy it's like well again i don't have to hurt that person you know or kill them certainly but i do think that it would be wrong to just like allow some little kid to to get hurt and to not stop it or whatever and i realized that that's the same logic though that people say when that's exactly what we did in world war ii a whole bunch of people were being thrown into furnaces and they were the powerless they were the minorities they were the, you know, um, the homosexuals, black people, handicapped people, of course, you know, Jewish people. They were being hurt. And, you know, you Christians can sit there with your, you know, with your pacifism and your ideals. But we're going to put a stop to this great evil. I mean, I agree with you. I, I told everybody in that room, I even told my wife, I said, listen, I'm going to do everything I can to stand in the way of that person. You know, I'm, I remember one time I was at a... Uh, a gym this one guy was he was going through a steroid rage basically he was he had trapped this this little guy in the corner and was swinging dumbbells at him i mean he was going to kill him Jeez. and um the funny thing was the lady next to me was a police officer she starts yelling somebody go do something and this wasn't this wasn't the pacifist part of me at the time, but in my head, I was saying, "Go get a gun, lady, and shoot the guy." Um, but what I, what I did was, is I ran over there because this guy was super strong, and and he's going through this rage. I put my arms over his arms to hold him down till this other guy could run. I think I would do the same as well. Um, I, I would hope that I would do the same, right? If a guy has a, a gun or a knife or something like that, that I would somehow step in the way to protect my wife. Yeah, I've told I've, I've told this story before. Um, I'll just tell it real quick in case, uh, Dave, you haven't heard it. But I used to work at a, a drug rehab in uh, near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I at the time was like a, a you know a supervisor, and I was in the the kitchen, you know, and there was a guy. He was doing the dishes. There was the you know the the women were eating, and so the men and the women were supposed to be separated. But for whatever reason, like this guy was in the kitchen doing the dishes and. He was going on and on about how, you know, everything at the rehab sucked and you couldn't smoke cigarettes and you couldn't, you know, and he was just really going on and on, slamming stuff around and all this stuff. And I had to say something, you know I mean? It got to the point where like, I had to like, you know, I had to say something like, Hey man, 
listen, there's a bunch of different rehabs you can go to where you can smoke and you can have sex with the other residents, but you just can't do it here, you know? And he got super, and there was, he had just cleaned a bunch of knives. And so like on the butcher's block or whatever, you know, they're always like butcher knives. And, you know, he was, uh, the other thing he was doing was he was boiling this, like he had made noodles or something like that in this big, huge pot. So in order to get like the, you know, the noodles from that were kind of caked on the side of it, he was boiling this pot. He said, uh, he was like, hey man, he was like, I'm not afraid of you. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? I'm just saying like, you can't, you know, you can't act like that here. You know what I mean? This is a Christian rehab. And he, you know, and he was clearly about to grab, like he, he, he did grab. And all those, it's funny how things happen in slow motion. You know, whenever like your, whenever your adrenaline starts pumping, it's like you get superpowers and you can kind of see things in slow motion. And he, he grabbed, you know, this pot, like he was going to throw it on me. And in, and in my mind, very quickly, I looked down at those knives and I thought, you know what? I'm going to duck behind this little wall. I'm going to let him throw the water. He's going to miss. And then I'm going to pick up that knife and I'm going to stab. Him. You know what I'm saying? Like it was that type of situation. And, but instead, and it's not because of any type of virtue on my part. It was like the Holy Spirit kind of intervened because I didn't even think to say this, but I just looked at him whenever he went to grab that pot. And I said, hey, man, I don't know what you're about to do right now, but I just want to tell you that I love you. And the reason why I'm here and I'm a supervisor here, I could have any other job is like, I want to stay here to help guys like you because the Lord has helped me as much as he has. And he kind of stopped and he kind of just like looked at me with a real strange look. He was like, you know, whatever, man, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of stormed out. And of course, I'm feeling very embarrassed because there's all these girls at this table. And I just told some guy that was about to try to hurt me. I love you. You know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, really? Did I really just do that? You know, and so like we were, you know, we we all sort of like walked out of there and we were walking up to the, you know, to like the chapel because we had classes or whatever. And, 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 you know, some of the girls were just saying like, that was that was so, you know, we respect that and all this stuff. But I was just mortified. I mean, I was so embarrassed. I was like ashamed of myself. Like I let this guy punk me and punk me and I told him I love you know, but later on that night, you know, I was in the dormitory and I was sitting there on my bed and here comes this guy and he's walking up to me like real fast. And I thought, Oh, you know, he's thought about it and he's ready to fight, you know? And so I kind of stood up and he was like, Hey man, he was like, I just want to tell you that I'm sorry about earlier. I've never seen anything like that. I want to, I want to see if you'd baptize me because I want to become a Christian. And I was like shocked, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> I thought you were going to, I thought you wanted to fight, you know, or whatever. And it was like, and again, that's not any virtue on my part. I, I was ready to kill this guy, you know, but the spirit, I really do feel like interjected in that moment. And I was able to kind of creatively inter, uh, inter- introduce, you know, an alternative to violence. And it changed this guy's life. I mean, I got, you know, right. I mean, he wanted to get baptized and we did, we baptized, it was, and it was at night, you know, we all, we all, there was a pond out back and we took him out back and we, we baptized him. So I do now, I do think that that's probably uh, the exception rather than the rule Um, that very easily could have led to some sort of terrible, you know, violence. But, but I do think that when we introduce the gospel into like, like Dr. King did and like so many others have done. It's the power of God. I mean, that is what, you know, that is the gospel. And so that, that's encouraging. Let me give Niebuhr's counter-argument to what you did. I, I know this is a downer. That's not what you want to hear. Niebuhr would say, yeah, and the, the king's nonviolence and Gandhi's nonviolence, that's not Jesus' nonviolence because it's, it is itself coercive. And so I think Niebuhr is misunderstanding He's thinking of Jesus' nonviolence, non-resistance as otherworldly. I think what we're describing in Jesus is a real-world engagement. So that it's not non-engagement. It is engagement. David grabbing the guy, you doing what you're doing. In other words, there's all forms of creative engagement that I don't think we would term violent. In other words, Jesus is engaging the powers in an effective way. That's not the reason you do it, that it's effective, but you discover its f- effectiveness right. in, in doing it. That's good. Uh, and not always, right? I mean, Dr. King may was... Not. Our, may not. May, I mean, you know, sometimes Dr. King was thrown into jail. Sometimes these people that were marching for peace... John Lewis. John Lewis. Yes. Oh, thank you, Lord. Yeah. So John Lewis, you know, whoever else... Thank you, sometimes Google. they get attacked yeah. by dogs, you know, sometimes they get sprayed down with, and the people that you don't hear about, 
this is Chomsky's point about the movement, the peace movement, is that, yeah, Dr. King might have got, like, the, all the spotlight, but, you know, it was all the organizers, and it was all the people who got attacked by dogs and got sprayed by hoses that you never heard of, who, the victims of, you know, the violence, who made the peace movement what it was, and, and you know, and, and for whatever effects it had. Oh, yeah. The people yeah. who suffered. Absolutely. And John Lewis got beat up. He got beat up in a bus station down south. You never hear anything about that. I mean, didn't he get his head cracked on the bridge that day? On the bridge, yeah. They gave him a concussion. You just got to so, yes. admire the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so so in other words, it's not, I mean, that guy could have turned around and just clocked David with a weight and killed him or whatever, right? But his willingness to interject himself into that situation, I think is a Christ-like thing because he could have become the victim of violence instead of someone else. Yeah, I think you're describing that there's always a possibility for a a peaceful intervention that we do not explore as long as we're committed to violence. And so that, in fact, it may kill us, it killed Christ, but that's the point is that this is an ultimate alternative. Or what if someone's going to hurt you? See, this is where Matt takes me. He takes me down these dark holes and then I have to spend the rest of the day and the week trying to climb out of them. No, that's not true at all. You always tell me that I pull you up out of the dark holes. <laughs> Usually. You're already, in, you're already down in there. I, I just try to pull you up out. Oh, you're just reaching down to where I'm at. I see. Okay, yeah, go I gotta ahead. Climb. I got to climb way down from the ladder. You know, I've ascended all the way to the, to the father, and I got to come all the way down into the basement. Okay. Uh, no. No, but I'm just, I, I'm just, I was just saying, you know, but this is Niebuhr's point about World War II, that all oh, this stuff is impossible or whatever. And so that's it. But then I read from Kreider, then I picked up Kreider's book, Chapter 5, and I was, you know, re- soberly reminded. Origen asked, for who of all believers does not know these words in Isaiah? So in other words, Kreider is saying that this must have been part of, or, you know, possibly was part of the catechesis, uh, because Origen starts out by saying, hey, who doesn't know this, you know, this passage from Scripture? And here's the passage that Crider says, according to origin, this text, which is Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, and Micah 4, 1 through 4, is one that all believers knew. How did they learn it? Was it a regular component in the catechesis that formed catechumens as they prepared for baptism? According to Gerhard Lofink, this is the prophetic passage that the early Christian writers cited more than any other. And so here's the passage, uh, and this is origin. For who of all believers does not know the words in Isaiah? Quote, and in the last days, the mountain of the Lord shall be manifest and the house of the Lord on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall come unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up unto the mountain of the Lord, unto the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his way and we will walk in it. For out of Zion shall go forth a law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. That might sound familiar to you. Uh, Um, Yes, it does. uh, So he'll judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so... You know, Crowder goes on to say, well, this hasn't maybe been fully, you know, realized, of course, but in the different nations, of course, there are these communities of patients, of Christians, who as who are embodying uh, this sort of um, habitus within those different communities. So I thought that it was a really pertinent kind of point, and especially to, of course, forging plowshares, you know, that, well, that's just a passage that every catechist had to memorize. Uh, that particular passage in Kreider, I found that quite significant, that every catechumen, the, the scripture he would know is er, that you're going to beat, the, the swords will be beaten into plowshares. That is, if you're going to be a Christian, step one, pacifism. Step one is no more swords. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, or at least, you know, step one is uh, is imitation of Christ, love, you know, in, in love for enemy, or at least this, you know, what Kreider's calling this habitus in this community uh, of believers, of followers of Christ, where they were committed to, as I read to you before that passage, you know, the turning the other cheek and, and all that stuff was actually something that uh, the Christians were just known for. You know, it wasn't like it was like, oh, 
maybe we'll do it or maybe we won't do it. It's like, well, that was kind of, sounds like that was maybe like the requirement to just be a, a part of these communities was to embody. And so Crider's whole point is, is that, well, you know, it seems like it's a lot less, you know, these big treatises, you know, that whatever these big writings about are, you know, a systematic theology or whatever that was compelling, but that it was just the habitus. It was just the things that the Christians that were doing, those were uh, embodied with habits that the communities were living out that were attracting people or at least separating them out to their neighbors that they were identifiable by the fact that they didn't share their lives. Yeah. You know, by the fact that they didn't, you know, get hammered, like they would, they wouldn't abuse God's gifts and things like this. So I just thought it was a really good, uh, it kind of fits with what we're doing um, in this class as well. I, I like the, the wording share, they shared food, but not their wives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were limits. Yeah, there, there were limits. The of the Niebuhr brothers, I dealt with Reinhold, maybe the most famous anti-pacifist. Uh, but his brother Richard writes Christ in, in culture, and of course, what you're describing, Matt, is the answer to the Niebuhrs, but also the answer to all these churches and Niebuhr, Reinhold, that abandon peace, uh, the peaceful kingdom. Yeah, this is this is impossible apart from the culture that we are to cultivate in the church. I, I was never exposed to, I mean, maybe, I get, maybe that's not right, that's not fair, but there was never a concentrated effort in the churches that I was a part of to uh, disciple or bring up people in this, train them in this discipleship. I think it's there, I mean, that's always kind of a part of the church, but not like you're describing or like Kreider's describing. Well, and it's it's interesting that I well, I think that part of what Kreider like the case that he's been sort of laying out in the early church is that these catechumens had to go through quite the process of formation, isn't that right, David? To where they had to show their uh, commitment to the this sort of habitus before they were even admitted into at least like the Eucharistic assembly, and so it's it's very interesting that it's just so different from much of how we sort of do things today right where it's like okay everyone you know be quiet bow your heads and you know no, no one has to see you know what just raise your hand keep kind of sort of privately come talk to me beforehand or after church and you know, accept christ into your heart and for some people baptism is, isn't even you know a major part of that or, or whatever so i don't know if that's fair I, I guess i'm just saying that it's very different where it seems like in the early church these these folks had to kind of show their commitment to that culture before they were admitted, at least into the Eucharistic uh, assembly. You could do it privately today, whereas in that period, it, the whole process was a public transformation. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Okay. That's right. And, and it, that over and over, Kreider is, po is pointing out that the Christians were known by their, their habitus, by their deeds, by the things that they did that separate. In other words, and he goes to great lengths to show that, well, Christians were less about the business of sort of writing these long books on here's what, you know, here's what we think. It was, now it's not to say that that wasn't happening, but it was really happening for the Christian communities to read, you know, to learn more about the theology uh, of the, of the, of, of the culture and of the tradition that they were uh, making themselves a part of. And so it's just interesting to me how different it is. And perhaps that has like a, well, it has to have like a great effect on on the communities that Christians become a part of because they they probably bring a lot of their sort of bad habits into the communities and they're really not even asked to relinquish those bad habits in many cases of violence and things like this. That's what has really stands out with me with with Kreider's book. There was a process and th there was no church service where you bowed your head and and you prayed. There was, listen, this is, this is what the gospel's about. I mean, you had to show, it, I mean, it, it seems like he says, you had to show that you were practicing this habitus prior to, like you said, the, uh, the Eucharist, prior to, really prior to baptism. It was quite, quite the process. And, and I don't know if that's because, you know, okay, let me back up. So in Acts, we, we see conversions that, that seem... Uh, a lot quicker, right? But I wonder if somewhat of the development of 
of what Kreider is showing in the church was, is you're dealing mostly with a Gentile society. You're not dealing with a Jewish society that already understands practices and habits and, and what this might look like. And so the acceptance of a Jesus uh, and their habits probably were already well in place. Whereas in this Gentile society, there's no confusion of, hey, this is, this is what it looks like. Sharing meals, not your wife, is what it looks like. And so we're going to help you with these practices. And is definitely a different mentality. And I wonder if we, at least here in the United States, we look more like the, the second and third century church in a Gentile territory than we do um, a first century church that began in Jerusalem, where, where they understood um, certain things about God. They understood certain practices and habits. And, and so maybe our um, services that uh, seek to have a quick, you know, bill of sale is is hurting the gospel yeah absolutely. no that's a that's a that was a great thought I, because i had never considered i think that that because i've wondered that myself it's like well in acts you know it seems like there's these sort of instantaneous you know baptisms and stuff like that but david i think that that's a really a, a really good insight that a good you know i would think that a, a person who's been formed in the in the in the jewish tradition would at least know that yeah you're not supposed to share your wife and things like that so and even with cornelius you know or someone like this it's like well he was a god fear and you know that word is sort of specific there about what that what that looks like i, I think i've read on you know that, that in other words I, I think that some of those god fearers or maybe all of them like that is the term for people who sort of lived in a similar way to the jews and had like sort of similar ethics and things like that already but you're right like in other words that maybe it wasn't people who were worshiping at the at the temple of diana or something like this maybe like those people did need to be go through that process of catechesis that would take a bit longer to kind of and, to, and it's almost like are you willing to it, it's it's kind of fascinating to me because it's like well isn't that what the early church saying it's, it's almost like are you willing to relinquish the cults you know at the temple which involves you know sex and are you willing to relinquish going to the festivals and you know gorging yourself with meat and and drink until you're sick are you willing to relinquish, you know, the violent, you know, maybe going to the games? Maybe it was something as simple as that. Like, you know, are you willing to not go to the gladiatorial games and things like that? Because that's what it's going to mean to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we've become a violent church. To me, there seemed to be what Matt, at least a remnant of that, of a, a very distinctive culture to these churches. When you say Anabaptist, also Mennonite churches, and at AMBS, you know, one of the things that just an obvious thing that when they took us around, everybody spoke Spanish and English. And so every conversation was in both languages, a clear cultural distinctive. And so there is this thing that has developed in these churches, obviously the uh, admiration for the martyrs and that these are the people that we're, that we're going to emulate. But my question is, why has that developed? And let me suggest that it is very much related to their concept of the atonement. First of all, step one is we know that with penal substitution, or even with divine satisfaction arising in the 11th century, we're going to get five centuries of almost nonstop church-sanctioned violence. The, the violence may have been not the norm, but the exception, nonetheless, that's the reality. And so once you go with divine satisfaction or penal substitution, uh, you could kill Jesus as a baby and still have a perfect sacrifice. It accomplishes all that. And so what you're losing, first of all, in an inadequate atonement theory, is a thing that we're already identifying in all of the peace churches. And it's there. I mean, it's, it's almost there in the in the various groups, you know, you go through, it's not like nobody was saying we don't follow Jesus as a model. I think that idea was there, but I think they lose that idea because their atonement theory didn't accord with that idea. Nearly all of them, actually the brethren are the exception here. The brethren don't hold up the Sermon on the Mount as the center of their peace understanding. Their idea is that with Constantine, the church fell and we never got it back. 
the other restoration, you know, the restorationist movements, the our churches, the whole, the holy uh, Church of God, but also the various holiness movements. Their idea is that there is a return to Jesus's model. The atonement theory is very much connected with this conversation we're having of an alternative model, alternative culture. And this gets overemphasized. You know, uh, Luther talks about sola fide. The Anabaptists are going to say, no, that's inadequate, that there has to be works of faith. That will become a kind of legalism, but their idea is that there's the law of Christ, and we follow the law of Christ. By the way, of course, this is the thing I noted in Niebuhr. Niebuhr, you know, Niebuhr is going to agree with this whole discussion that Jesus teaches pacifism, that that's there in the Sermon on the Mount, and that a true follower of Jesus recognizes the the peace emphasis. Niebuhr says, yep, that's there, and if you're going to be uh, a follower of Christ, you can do that and be completely irrelevant and inconsequential. And so his point is not to question the teaching of Jesus, but his point is to say, yeah, but that teaching is not really for this world. But of course, what's happening with the Anabaptists, they're going to try to keep the law of Christ. Neighbor's going to say, no, that's, that's as impossible as keeping the Old Testament law. Matt actually called me the other day to discourage me. <laughs> I did not call to discourage you. That is not true. It, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get a rise out of you. <laughs> Call me with all these stories about why we can't do this thing. That's not true either. <laughs> and he convinced me <laughs> it's impossible. And I think that, I, in other words, I think Niebuhr is very compelling, and I think all these arguments are very compelling. I don't, you can't refute them on their own ground. The only counter to it is what Matt began with, and that is to say, yeah, that's not where we start. We're starting with this idea that what Christianity is about is being like Jesus and that we can do that. And of course, where we lose that uh, in the modern period is a very kind of shallow understanding of what Jesus is about, that we have this notion of truth. You know, that's very much there in Niebuhr, but I think that what Niebuhr is articulating is something that is sort of, we're all kind of subject to that. And that is an appeal to what we all know to be the case, an appeal to common sense, an appeal to uh, Western understanding of reason. And maybe even if we don't say it that way, that's really kind of where we're at. And of course, the point, I think this is the, the exciting thing that is taking place in our own lifetimes. I've seen it develop. You know, when I was in seminary or in Bible college, nobody was talking this way. To describe a truth, that is, there's an undoing of our very notion of truth. I think that's what's involved in this formation of new people, in this formation of a new culture. That's the way you reform the very ground of truth. In other words, I think that we are formed in a frame of mind a Niburian frame of mind, a modernist frame of mind. That's just sort of the way we're, we're given. And so apart from this discipleship, this transformation, I don't know that we can be grounded in, in the alternative truth that Christ is giving us. In other words, that we need to understand that what is being undone is the foundations. Once we relegate the atonement to a legal transaction, we've already missed it. And uh, by going back and looking at peace, this is what I would mean by peace. It is this holistic definition. It's a non-agonistic, non-dialectic, non-dualism. Peace is, a, is an alternative to that description of truth that's coming out of postmodernism that is simply violent. You know, that's Derrida's conclusion. The way we have it now, reason, the law, language, it's violent. And I think he's right. In other words, I think that is a, a correct description. And so what you're getting in the Anabaptists, they don't quite get there, but it's almost Irenaeus's or Justin Martyr's recapitulation theory. And that is you're going through all of the stages of life what, where they do get, Matt, and you'll be surprised at this, 
is divinization. And I don't think they're getting it from the Eastern Orthodox. In other words, I, as far as I can tell, this is their own depiction of an understanding they come to. Explain that word f for me. Matt, give uh, David a rundown on theosis. So theosis and divinization are, the, are, are similar ways to talk about union with God. This is what Paul was talking about with the Eastern Orthodox tradition, is that the meaning and the purpose of life is theosis, is union with God, is divinization. So um, Athanasius says that you know, Christ, God became man so that man might become God. So the whole meaning and purpose of salvation is for human beings to become united with God and to become, you know, like Christ said, I, did I not say that you are God? Of course, we wouldn't become God in the uncreated sort of eternal, infinite sense. We could, we're, we're always going to be creatures, but that in Second Peter, where he says that we'll be partakers of the divine nature, that the Orthodox Church is saying that, you know, every time, even whenever we participate in the Eucharist and the, the Holy Communion of the blood, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's nothing short of deification because we're joining the body and blood of christ to our own body and so that we're being united with him in that ontological you know way and it is interesting that uh that these other traditions will be able to come that honestly that this whole part about theosis was is probably the reason why i you know joined the orthodox church because i did think that well this does seem to be the meaning and purpose of life you know, it, it's not just like what Paul said earlier. Why didn't Jesus just die as a little baby? That's the myth, you know, because the Eastern Church is saying, yeah, the uh, or the Orthodox Church is saying that anything that uh, is not assumed, uh, it's basically saying that whatever God doesn't assume isn't healed. That's what it is. The the fact that God, you know, becomes a human being and actually lit, he doesn't just die as a as a little baby. You know, he 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 grows up. That in other words, that the whole incarnation is about healing humanity and that that's the purpose of salvation is to join is to become like christ in the sense that he's fully human and fully divine you know of course we're not going to be fully divine right but that we're going to be well i don't know i don't know maybe maybe that that there is like uh paul we can talk about that right it's like maybe that's problematic language of can we become fully divine but i do think that that isn't that what salvation is is to become united with the divine nature again it, we're we're never going to be god and sort of the uncreated sense right like we're always going to be creatures but that doesn't mean that we can't become i would think fully divine like we're always going to retain our humanity but isn't that the purpose of uh salvation is to become fully human and at least more fully divine you know <laughs> uh, certainly certainly a participation right and this is the thing that anabaptists are focused on that unless a person responds to the work of christ Atonement is not efficacious. In other words, what you're getting in a forensic understanding, you really don't need to do anything because it's all forensic. But the idea in the uh, Eastern, but also in the Anabaptists, is that the saving work is of Christ is the an actualizing of the Spirit, of the power of the Spirit, in which you appropriate Christ's saving work. And of course, the language here, you have to be, it's not luther's accusation oh you're saved by works but it's the idea that there is a saving work that salvation is this process that is it's a practical salvation and i think in both the catholic and the protestant traditions there's a the focus on the forensic and that all that is really necessary is a pure victim and the Anabaptists are saying, well, we need a Redeemer, but we also need an example. We need one in whom we participate. I would almost not say it the way they say it, but the idea is that, well, there's salvation, but there's also a series of directives on how to live. I would just run those two together. That is, following Christ as example is salvation. But their understanding is, well, you're, there's salvation in a kind of... They're still holding to, by the way, an Anselmian. They, they never repudiate Anselm. But they say that Anselm is inadequate, and so they're adding to Anselm. Al Balthazar Hubmeyer describes this in a very synergistic way. That He says, the soul is awakened, made healthy, given freedom to again choose the good. And the idea is that it must cooperate with God. And even the cooperation, they're not denying that that's enabled by Christ. They're saying, yeah, God does this, 
but not apart from incorporating it to make it effective. And so we must allow ourselves to be reconciled. And uh, it takes place only with human cooperation. Leonard Scheimer, he was a Franciscan friar for six years, and then he converts to Anabaptism, and they kill him in six months. But even in that little time, we get some of his writing. He says, God has revealed sin and brought sorrow unto repentance. He says, he places us naked and bare into the second birth and gives us his spirit and teaches us to love him. So here's the idea of new birth, but it's new birth. Yeah, but you don't stop there. In other words, it's a, it is the beginning of a maturing process. They call this divinization. They're using German. And so I'm not sure how, what the history of it is. Pilgrim Marpeck emphasizes Jesus' humiliation, suffering, sacrifice, that he affects liberation rather than a changed legal status. And by his patient and in innocent endurance of the cross, quote, Christ has liberated his people from their eternal burden. I think this is the peace that we're describing. And so to the Anabaptist, divinization means that human beings have been freed from the effects of the fall. And they appropriate the work of Christ and they have full communion with the Trinity. This is Dirk Phillips. But the believers become gods and children of the Most High through the new birth, the impartation and fellowship of the divine nature, righteousness, glory, purity, and eternal life. They will be taken up into glory even as God is in glory. If you got up and said that in our churches, it might sound a little strange. But of course, the Eastern Orthodox thing would be, yeah, but Christ says, you shall be gods, little g. I think it fits. You know, I think we can put it in more in a language that we're used to because it's there in the New Testament, and that is being part of the body of Christ, that we're individual members, that we're the living stones in Peter's description. And so the idea is not simply a past event. That's the way I think atonement theory tends to work. But this is a continuing process that is brought about. This is my point. This is the critical distinction between with Anabaptists. And I would go on and say, and this is the difference. Not to say that there's not a little bit of this, but I don't think a fully developed Anabaptist Christus Victor recapitulation, divinization notion is going to make an enduring concept of peace. That's my point. Paul, you should just become an Eastern Orthodox Christian, except if a peaceful atonement theology equals, or maybe equals, a peace church, well, then how come the Orthodox Christians have been so involved with, you know, violence? Because we have a very, you know, our, our atonement theology, of course, is uh, not Anselmian. It's not penal substitution. It's not uh, these these other sort of more violent uh, atonement theories. But, of course, you know, we, we talked about our proximity to empire and maybe the reason why. But that, So that was my first thought. It's kind of an interesting thing. Do you want to... Let me, let me see if I, and, and you may have a comeback. When we're talking about this Anabaptist understanding and the early church understanding that you're getting in Christus Victor, there's this sharp sense of conflict with the world. There's the talk of the flesh, the devil, the religious political structures, the, the emperor. They're going to talk about this Peter Reidman. He talks about People are bound by the devil in chains. He wrote to Christ, he came to destroy the work of the devil. He's destroyed the power of death, hell, and the devil. He's overcome death and risen again. And so there's this Christus Victor motif that is very much over and against the world. And I guess that once the, even an Eastern Orthodox uh, kind of subsumption into empire, this church-world dichotomy is no longer part of the Catholic Church, either in its Eastern or Western incarnation. I, that sounds right, it, it, and it's unfortunate, right? That because part of the stuff that we've been talking about in this class, and David, we've talked about, is of course you know the major problem here in America is a sort of is conflating 
of course, you know, Christianity and kind of American values or whatever you want to call it, right? That there's this American ethos or culture that is kind of conflated with the Christian ethos or culture. You know, it's like mixing oil and, and water, only they, they seem to kind of strangely mix well, <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, it's a terrible mixture, but it, it does seem to somehow go together. Instead of that Christian culture and ethos sort of informing uh, you know, the American churches and our theology, whether it's Niebuhr or whoever else, it seems like the, the opposite has happened, of course, right? Where like the American ethos and culture has more shaped our theological discourse, our liturgical, you know, even, you know, sensibilities and, and all sorts of different things. The more I read, you know, some of the, the Orthodox fathers and the, the, you know, the monks and people like that, well, the whole, the whole life is to become consumed with the remembrance of God. The whole point of salvation is to not compartmentalize in any way the divine life or to place it sort of outside the realm of uh, embodiment or a thought or to imagine that we can be double-minded in any way. But the whole point is to always remember God, to always embody a Christian sort of ethos, to always be worshiping, to always be embodying a sort of uh, from moving from glory to glory, right? In theosis, to, to become more and more uh, united with God. And so what that means then is to incorporate one's entire sort of worldview, economics, political, soteriological, atonement theory, whatever, all of it is to be united and united with the person of of christ and of the holy trinity let me try a suggestion on you that in both east and west with the kind of exceeding to empire there's a lot of focus on holiness but it's almost like this focus on and i'm not saying that's a that's you know that's good that's great but it is a holiness that becomes in other words, what we're going to get out of this development is a gradual notion of an individualistic salvation. In other words, as we're describing this cultivation of the individual, which I think is the, you know, in both the, the monastic tradition and a, a kind of personal holiness, I'm afraid that what is missed is, this whole, is what you're describing of a, whole, a holism. I, I literally don't think that people were at a place, I know this sounds arrogant, it almost sounds Enlightenment-like, but I think it's there in Scripture. I think this is the uh, point of the discussion about the kingdom of God, the city of God. In other words, why that language? Why that corporate language? Because I think what is there in the New Testament is what we're now recognizing you don't have a person apart from the city, you know, the, the city or the political structure. I, I think in this sense, looking at somebody like Niebuhr is very revealing in this because what he, he is the best. He's kind of the culminating point of modernity. That once you're enlightened, once you understand, you know, the way of science and the modern, the you know, tradition, there's a kind of baseline foundation for truth. And what we've always been saying is, well, no, you, you just have to dig up the foundations. And so that language of Christ as foundation, we talk that way. But I think that we're now in a, in a place where we can realize, oh, that's everything. In other words, the formation of people, the formation of truth. I would even go through the idea of sociology, psychology, and dare we say it, the ground of a scientific understanding. And I, I know that can get a kind of a ghetto. I don't mean it in that kind of ghetto kind of Christian mentality. But I think a fully engaged understanding in these areas is what we are in the process of recognizing and realizing. And that is, that makes for a fully grounded peace sensibility and that's what's missing east and west well i think it's there i mean I, you know you're you're tracing it 
and I do think that it is there uh, in in um, different traditions in the you know yeah East yeah Lord yeah Lord. yeah 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 you don't want to just leave just, that that kind of sweeping statement is too much because yeah it's here it's here right now in this group right I mean we're east and west or however you want to call it it's like well maybe that isn't even helpful um, you know it's like because well we're here in this group and from different you know traditions and it's like well. Yeah, but we're a peace community and we're trying to work this thing out and we're all saying together everything that we do from the moment that we wake up, you know, it's like the first thing that we should do is remember God and say, thank you, Lord, for waking me up today. And then you get up out of bed and whether you're on social media or whether you're um, watching, you know, whatever you're watching or listening to or conversations or reading or just everything you're voting or spending your money or just every single thing that we do. We're supposed to do it with the mind of Christ. That is theosis. That is divinization, to have the mind of Christ. And so the mind of Christ, I, it was peaceable. <laughs> I mean, I just don't, I don't think that there's any arguing that. I got to go, guys. I wish I could stay and talk for the rest of the day, but I got to go. Okay, Matt. Hey, we'll do one more class, and David will present all of his conclusions. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Love you guys. All right. Love you, Matt. Bye-bye. Yeah, I look forward to hearing your paper. All right. Well, I look forward to starting to put it together at some point. <laughs> well, enjoy your time tonight. All right, Dave. All right. We'll see you. See ya. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.